You're listening to Remote Possibilities, a podcast on the intersection of technology, society, and education, brought to you by MarketScale. Now here's your host, Kevin Hogan. Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Remote Possibilities, the podcast that explores the promise and the perils of distance learning. I'm your host, Kevin Hogan, and I'm glad you found us. With me today is Rob Waldron, CEO of Curriculum Associates. Rob has driven the transformation of this nearly 50-year-old company from a print workbook provider to a cutting-edge industry leader in the education technology space. Under his leadership, the company developed the iReady digital solution that has been proven to improve learning outcomes and drive student achievement. Rob leads with the knowledge that his decisions impact classrooms and students nationwide, and he has created a corporate culture in which employees at every level are committed to making a true difference in education. Now, the company itself, founded in 1969, Curriculum Associates designs research-based print and online instructional materials, screens and assessments, and data management tools. The company's products and outstanding customer service provide teachers and administrators with the resources necessary for teaching diverse student populations and fostering learning for all students. Rob, thanks for taking the time for joining us here today and uh, Remote Possibilities. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Kevin. I've known Curriculum Associates for years. Uh, you guys do a lot of great work in a lot of different areas of education. Uh, but in danger of burying the lead, I guess the most recent news to come out of Curriculum Associates had to do with some of your uh, professional development uh, products. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. So, yeah, we've been doing uh, a lot with professional development and been as busy as ever there uh, uh, because of COVID and the, the switch from uh, what was live to what was uh, virtual. Uh, and so we have both sort of asynchronous and synchronous. So you know, something where you're seeing live or things you're doing at home at night and stuff. And, uh, so yeah, we've been, we've been super busy with all these, uh, with all these changes, um, uh, based on COVID. So it's a, it's a hard time for schools. We want to be there in service and support and help them, uh, shift some of those practices. Cause it's, uh, it's a, it's a lot of work for them to be able to have hybrid solutions as an example in many places, not all places, but where they're, they're having to be, live with some students and remote with some students all in the same day. Right, right. I keep referring to things as BP and uh, AP before pandemic and, and after. Uh, March seemed to be the kind of the, the crux of that. Uh, talk a little bit about the spring and, and what Curriculum Associates uh, had to do to pivot to uh, respond to customer needs. Well, sure. So, you know, the thing that um, was able we we got a little bit of a jump start. I, I remember I was in my office when I first heard that uh, Japan closed its schools, and I think it's hard to remember back there with all the things going on. But I, you know, at one point it was this something going on in a what felt like a neighborhood in China, and when I saw the newswire that the country had closed its schools, I, I uh, Japan of all people who take their education very seriously. I thought, oh my goodness, like the country closed its schools. And I stood up from my desk and I went around and to every executive, I'm like, I want this entire company to be ready to go virtual uh, in the next two weeks. Yeah. 
and they thought I was exaggerating and so forth. But we, what we did is we went and got ready to be virtual ourselves and to deliver virtual uh, PD uh, at that time. Wow. So when you talk about PD, you know, it's funny, even just the phrase professional development, since I started covering education technology, always seemed a little vague to me. <clears throat> it took a while to even figure out that it's kind of talking about teacher training, right? But it has this kind of general sense to it. Um, what does professional development mean in the in the time of pandemic when, as you just mentioned, it's like all we're trying to do is survive and get it together? Well, I, I think um, the, our delivery mechanisms are quite a bit different, but the needs are not. And uh, so um, we have about 1,500 people who work at the company, uh, nearly 500 work in professional development. So it's a huge part of our work. Um, so professional development has to do with some in the beginning, it has to do with how to use our product and understand how it works, but then it quickly turns into how to have a data-driven classroom, how to shift practices. Um, it's now, you know, converted to other things about how, how we're things that we used to. W w in addition to online things, we sell uh, books, and these books were meant for classroom use. So how are we going to shift practices where the child has the book at home and they're on Zoom and so forth? So it's, uh, but it's the same requirement, which is a teacher is learning how to use the materials and the curriculum that they've made. And it's a very rigorous curriculum and has lots of different parts to it. And how do we make sure that information gets to them and that they, in this new world, can shift their practices to uh, to handle the fact that they're in a very different setting. Gotcha. Let me ask you this. Before pandemic, were your products and services developed with the intention of being used remotely? Well, iReady, the, uh, the, one of our feature products uh, can be used either in the classroom, in a computer lab, or at home. And it has multiple parts. So there, there are times where the teacher might put a lesson on the whiteboard and so forth. But principally, that product is personalized and adjusts to each individual learner. So it was a, it, it was super popular before, but even more popular during COVID because it allowed for a child's individual instruction uh, to go on. And it can be because it's uh, based on a password that the child has in school and it's a cloud-based product it easily ported uh, over to home in where children had access. And was that a situation where it was able to be used at home, but really wasn't used that much uh, as opposed to where we're all forced to? Yeah. So it just uh, depends on the use case in the school. It, um, it had been principally used within school settings for reasons of equity with devices and so forth. But in, in many places it had been used at home before where, where a, teacher would teach a particular concept and ask you to do iReady at home. It wasn't the typical one, um, but we had all the systems in place uh, to be able to do it. Yeah. Well, how about with the, the product uh, professional development? So we were, um, that was all new. Our professional development had been uh, nearly entirely live. And uh, just to give you a, a little, some of the numbers that, you know, we have, um, about uh, 10 million children, uh, almost 30% of the K-8 children in the United States who use our products uh, sometimes every day. And uh, 
I think uh, I don't, we have about 500,000 educators and administrators that support that. And um, so we're also using it, logging in, looking at reports and so forth. And so we suddenly, for those 500,000 people, that's half a million people, had to shift our practices to make sure we were we were able to get through to those folks, talk about the changes, including new features in the product that we did uh, just for, for COVID. Wow. In, in terms of the content of the professional development courses, um, were they uh, changed or abandoned to teaching uh, teachers how to use Zoom or like? Yeah, no, it was. So we, I mean, the, I think our experience was the teachers were, you know, knew how to use Zoom and so forth. But the kinds of issues that came up is we do as, as an example of a sort of a deeper issue that's difficult. We do a lot with uh, mathematical discourse. Uh, it just means kids talking about their math with each other. Um, we've done a ton of research that shows that when a when one child works with another child to describe how they got to an answer, they discovered that they could get to the same answer in three different ways. And it teaches, uh, in small groups, it teaches them a lot more about math. And instead of just going through a rote process, they conceptualize the math, they understand the math a lot better. So suddenly, in, you know, if, if you were breaking up into small groups and having these activities that are based on mathematical discourse, all of a sudden you're with one and 25 on Zoom, like, how do you go about it? And so, you know, we shifted some of the professional development that we gave to support the fact that the the child had the book in their hands, but not in the same room with another child. And how do we engage in mathematical discourse uh, now in COVID? So that would be an example of a, of a shift we had to make, uh, even though we're trying to solve the same problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of the conversations I've been having uh, in regards to students is this huge surge in the uh, the use or the application of social emotional learning that you know we all have gone through and continue to go through this this kind of collective trauma, but not not a lot of talk about uh, thinking about the social emotional needs of the, of the teachers. Is that something that uh, You've had to apply as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. Um, that's a great, great point, uh, Kevin. And it, it's not like we're giving a lesson on social emotional teacher health, but one of the things that we did is to make sure our people are there to be service providers. So it's a little bit like being able to call your nurse or your doctor or some other person who's assisting you in life. Um, if you know you you can get to a live person, you have their email, you're trying to figure out something and you're not stuck in an 800 number and uh, wondering how to get help. So the, the, I think the key thing was forming a relationship, being able to answer questions and frankly share best practices. So some of the things that we were doing is we would start uh, through research and other ways, we would start to see best practicing practices happening in one school or district and quickly get those out and share those with others. So sometimes people don't call that professional development, but that's what it is. I mean, you're the sharing of best practices to see how are people responding right now to this need in order to solve this problem. And that could be anything from um, the, all the things we've talked about in terms of the instruction, but sometimes it was, we can't get any Chromebooks 
who's gotten the Chromebooks? How do I get the bureaucracy over to get the Chromebooks? Because we had seen other districts who did that well. So um, that's not typically something we would do. We don't call it professional development, but that's what was needed at the time. Like just yeah. solve our problems, tech problems, bandwidth problems, um, in addition to uh, the more classic professional development uh, that maybe you were speaking about. Yeah, well, it is one of the positives uh, following this whole uh, you know, tragedy is that the ed tech industry really did become one big customer support center <laughs> for schools, right? I mean, from the from the telcos and for the major platforms all the way down to uh, you know, various curriculum, just as what you're describing, which is a positive thing, and hopefully will will continue to uh, endure uh, through all of this. Well, you know, I think you make a very interesting point, Kevin. So that the one of the things that occurs sometimes in our industry more than others, and it, it comes for a good reason, but because it's government procurement, there are laws to government procurement, and then sometimes some companies, uh, certainly not ours, but some companies have gotten ahead of themselves in chicanery that they're doing in order to try to get a, a deal done or political giving and that kind of thing. And so there have been times where it's created distance and rules about procurement that make it hard um, to get help. So this is less true in other industries that are also of service like medicine. So there's a deep connection to, between Siemens and GE and pharmaceutical companies and the doctors. Sometimes it overreaches, but mostly it's they have to make all those things work together. And if you don't, you're going to kill the patient. Um, and if you go to an emergency room today in America, the connection, the interoperability of multiple providers uh, being governed and led by the institution that purchased them uh, is very high. And in education, it is not. And I think one of the, as you say, the silver linings about this is, look, in a crisis, um, while the government's still in charge, the institution should be run by the government and there should be no change there. Entrepreneurs have a place to help. Typically, entrepreneurs can move faster than a government entity in a, in a two or three week moment. And I think what we saw is the that got better where they called on us for help. Our team was more than eager forever to figure out what to do. Cause like any citizens in America, we felt despondent by not being able to help. And the connection of those two things led to some powerful action uh, that went much faster than, than at other times. And I think the lesson is, is that what happens when in a, in a way that still follows all the procurement laws and everything else that we can, we can embrace each other and get stuff done and we were called upon. So, you know, I, before COVID, I was, wasn't called upon by a state commissioner to be like, what can you do? What can you deliver now? How can, fast can we go? And now, you know, state commissioners were calling me yeah. and the same, they were calling medical folks. They're like, we've got to get entrepreneurs to get through to help. And so, and I think that was a, you know, in a very difficult situation, one one of the silver linings. Yeah. Well, tracking this from the from the spring through the summer, I've noticed a, a, a change in tenor, uh, a change in focus of as opposed to just trying to keep a, a, a connection with students, uh, forget about assessment or forget about uh, learning loss, to one where trying to build some sort of uh, structure in which uh, traditional education. Uh, can, can return. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your experiences over the summer and watching any of those sort of transitions? Uh, yeah, well, there's, 
you know, the, the biggest thing that, uh, I mean, there's just so many things to, to mention, but, you know, one of the things is, is getting data to people in a way they can handle the crisis. And so as an example with us, you know, we developed a, um, uh, a report that allowed you to know, like, okay, if, if this, if I'm about to teach this standard, I can't go back and say, well, the kid didn't have spring. So I'm going to go back and start uh, in January again, we need to give you information that says what prerequisite skills, it's called a prerequisite report, what prerequisite skills do we need to get ready to teach the standard? So that's an example of a, of a shift. Like we, we just don't have time. So we have to do that. So, so a lot of us like looked at ways of pushing ourselves to improve efficiency and productivity to get data to people so that they're not starting from scratch. So, so that would be one example. Um, and, you know, we had to pull apart our professional development. We, we used to give one three-hour session because we show up um, live, and now we're much more flexible where we can give 45 minutes or an hour, and people can go in and out, and it fits more with their needs because um, you don't want us to show up because uh, you don't want us there live. And so we showed the advantages of that flexibility, and um, we've had the same uh, – Interesting. I was surprised by this. We've had the same customer satisfaction, educator satisfaction ratings as we had when we were live. Um, and I think in part because we're more flexible. Uh, so it's working just as well. And, and um, uh, that's a little bit how those things have gone. Talk a little bit about um, practices or technologies or um, just new ways of doing things that have occurred out of necessity that you think um, might stick around, you know, if when we go back to whatever normal means. Uh, for me, that the one thing that has, has stuck out after having a, a back to school Zoom room night for about 90 minutes last night, I got so much more out of that than I had ever done in the 15 years I've been to in person <laughs> back to school nights where I'm sitting at a tiny desk in the back of the room and just looking at my watch. Uh, have you seen anything where you could see looking towards the future that will will stick? Yeah, I think um, a, a couple things. One is I do think it will stick, not completely, but it might be much better for a teacher's life that instead of staying late on a Wednesday, that they can go home or even be at their own desk on a Wednesday or, you know, when they go early in some schools in America, go home early, and each individually engaged in the content where they can see better, whatever, and and they they might prefer the remote learning for PD for some of the content. Mm -hmm. Not all of it, but I, and still hear from their, if, if it's done well, still, still hear questions, asks, and so forth. But particularly when you're in the beginning, when you're showing, um, how the software works, sort of being able to look at the screen, see the speaker, engage with your own computer. I mean, when before when we had PD, we'd had everybody with their laptop out in the in in the first stages of PD when you're just learning how the, how it works, and that's easier to do at your own desk, right? So I think they may uh, prefer that shift. The, the second thing is I think there's more likely to have a, a thing where they do 10 to 20 minutes or something of asynchronous work 
content that they get before they hear the lecture rather than having to sit and listen to the lecture of that live where you, I did a little bit of work, you do it on your own time, and then and then now I'm engaged in questions and so forth about what I saw. So you can do the second half of the thing. Again, this saves teachers' times. It's more flexible. But we'll see. You know, it's very possible that uh, the people come back and be like, we don't, we're sick of Zoom. We want everything live. Show up live. And, you know, we will, of course, accommodate that. Uh, so it remains to be seen. Yeah. I see. Uh, at the same time, a lot of these technologies are really taking off. I mean, Zoom's going to be much more elegant in 24 months, right? I mean, there are going to be new cameras that are going to make it much more easier on the eyes to to look at our big 4K screens on you know on our TVs, let alone our laptops. And I think that I, I agree with you that will go because that kind of follows what's happening in other vertical industries. Um, when you, especially when you look at corporate training and corporate development, and they're looking at the cost savings of not flying new employees around for onboarding in person when they can just go and follow through uh, with some on learning course, online learning courses, right? Right. Well, that's right, Kevin. That's one way. And, and then the second thing is it allows for different levels of expertise because it's not only whether you're flying someone, but when you fly someone, you typically have to fly a generalist. And now, you know, we could give PD and a, a person who is an expert on dyslexia um, could appear and switch to an expert on Spanish and then switch to a math expert. And before it would be cost prohibitive school and the company to say, well, you got to fly all five experts in for this one thirty teacher session. Now we, we can actually do that. Um, and so there's some advantages uh, that way. And, and I think schools will be more accepting of that the remote way may be better. And certainly it allow us to, to be more flexible in the type of expertise that we can deliver to the school. Yeah, I mean, these are very much the um, promises that people talked about for students, right? Through MOOCs or through distance learning, you know, up until uh, the p pandemic started, it was all kind of conceptual. And now we're watching it turn into a, some sort of reality. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Rob, let me ask you about another aspect of uh, this whole scenario is the, I call it the introduction of parents to the to the education equation. Having written about EdTech for 15 years, it's less than five articles I can recall writing that talked about the parents being involved. And now every parent's a teaching assistant and every parent is uh, IT support, right? Correct. Uh, how, how had this scenario changed uh, curriculum associates uh, relationship with parents? Well, um, it's great to see parents engaged. I, I would, I would say I've seen a few trends. Uh, some of them are terrific. Some of them are understandable, but not as good. So the, you know, I think the first trend is the respect for teachers has grown in America, but pe people had no idea. <laughs> They, they were sending their kid off. They're like, oh, the teachers are schools. Now they're, I mean, the, the love for teachers and how hard it is and how demanding it is. I, I have seen a shift. And, you know, there's nothing like trying it yourself to gain respect for expertise. <laughs> right. So uh, I, I don't think that's a small thing, Kevin. I, I think renewing uh, respect for teaching as a profession is a wonderful thing that's happened 
in in an in otherwise terrible crisis. So uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is is that um, you know there there is differences with devices and equity and so forth. We've been studying every every week in the spring and now what happens in different places with different demographics. Um, so it is true in places where the school is located in a medium household income less than fifty thousand. You know, we're getting 55% or 60% usage of iReady and in incomes over 100,000, we're getting over 90% usage. And so you you really got to watch the divide. That was, those are spring numbers. I think it's getting better now as we're measuring it. But um, it is interesting that kids, um, so as I, and I think this has to do with parents. In my state, um, while not as many students in low-income neighborhoods have access. The children from low-income neighborhoods use use iReady uh, 30% more than high-income neighborhoods when they have access. In other words, something's going on at home where they're using it more. And I, I can't prove why, but I would think that, you know, low-income parents not wanting what's best for the children is a complete fallacy, that they are managing it and trying to get the kids working and um, giving them help. And so we, we don't know for sure, but I can tell you for sure that in my state, in the spring, kids from low-income neighborhoods use it 30% more in, uh, minutes a week than their higher-income peers. Um, so, you know, that's a, one kind of an important thing that I think is uh, going on. A, a thing that is a little bit more difficult is that our, the way our program works is we do an adaptive assessment uh, three times a year, particularly at the beginning of the year, and then you go on and have your instruction um, is is basically uh, selected based on the results of the, this adaptive diagnostic. And so one of the things is parents, particularly parents of K-1 kids, can't help themselves but to help their kid. Right. And um, <laughs> so we've had to shift to creating materials for parents uh, through the schools and say like, look, you wouldn't help your kid with an eye exam. Like, don't help your kid with this because it screws up our system. And so, you know, it's uh, before we worked on that communication, we literally got an ad agency to make, you know, what is basically almost like an ad for two minutes to describe to parents, like, think about making it every, everyone think that your kid's eyes are better than they are. Like it, it's yeah. not, it's not a high stakes thing. It just gets you the wrong instruction. Right. And we did that and we shifted and uh, it still exists some, you know, it's very hard to tell your kindergarten or first grade, uh, grade or not to help. But, you know, I, I had one teacher text us in the middle where she was talking, I believe it was to a first grade student on zoom and watching the parent take the child's diagnostic in the background. <laughs> And uh, and actually texted us is like, is there a way to turn it off for an individual kid? Like, you know, and you just you can see everybody's trying to do what's best, but uh, uh, for their kid, and I can understand the struggle. But you know, for us, it means that we're not going to tailor that instruction to that child, and and we're not used for high stakes anything. And all of our instruction, the online part of our instruction, just just works really well when we get the the best information. So we have challenges like this that are coming up, and we have to train teachers and then train parents uh, uh, on how that. That works. Step away from the Chromebook. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Rob, I really appreciate your time. Uh, really, a lot of enlightening points here. And uh, as I always try to draw out of these, some positive points. I mean, I think there's some real uh, glass half full, the field out cliches. 
that we'll all maybe pull out of this madness. Do you agree? Yeah, I think uh, we're about to publish some information, Kevin, that shows that while it exists, it's real, that the the spring learning loss based on our data was uh, was not as much as was predicted or that some of the other reports predicted now that we have the data, it exists. Um, but you'll see that soon where it was uh, quite a bit better than, than I think most people understood. Oh, I look forward to uh, reading that, that's for sure. So thanks again for joining me, and thanks to the listeners, and I hope you click around and find another episode of Remote Possibilities soon.